0: Hi there. Welcome back to Great Quarter, guys. Episode 80, a bit of a monumental one here for us at Freight Waves. This is the show where the lines between freight and finance are none. I'm your host, Andrew Cox. I'm alongside lead economist Anthony Smith once again this week. We are guest list today, so it is Anthony and I running the gauntlet of these 30 minutes with you. And we've got some earnings talk. We're going to, of course, discuss Amazon. They posted earnings on Thursday. They posted the third straight $100 billion revenue quarter. They posted, uh, I mean, just net income up 49% year over year, EPS up 42% year over year, doing great things. And yet the stock has sold off 8%. Jeff Bezos is no longer the richest man on earth. Uh, Bernard Arnault has taken over him, at least for the time being. So a lot to discuss there. We've also got uh, a, few, um, a few sonar charts for you, as well as some fun buyer sales and you care or Nas. But first, let me thank my sponsor, Emerge. This episode is brought to you by Emerge, the digital freight marketplace. While market volatility is affecting everyone, you need an RFP expert to navigate the uncertainty, industry expertise, and technology for your RFP event now and in the future. Emerge from the confusion by visiting get.emergemarket.com slash GQG. Again, that's get.emergemarket.com slash GQG. Okay, before we start the show, I wanted to bring in this little fun fact I saw on Twitter. Uh, Shout out to Saga Partners on Twitter for sharing this. And I wanted to bring this up because Amit Maratra, who was on our show two weeks ago, the Deutsche Bank analyst, he had this great uh, discussion about what he thought was the Beverly Hills of trucking. He said LTL was the Beverly Hills of trucking. Well, we asked him what he thought was kind of the best land in the entire transportation space. And he pointed to the fact that at, uh, the rails have demonstrably been the place to be over the past several decades. They've had consolidation. They've had pricing power. They've got really high barriers to entry. You can't just go laying track down anywhere. Uh, and here's what that kind of plays out to be. So this is a, a list of the top of, of companies that have earned more than the S&P 500 for four decades. This is dating back to 1981 to 2021. Look at that top name there, just the poultry little Kansas City Southern, a boring Rail company, uh, the number one returner over that time. There was some exclusions there. Home Depot should have been put in there if, if it would have been a six-month difference. Home Depot would have actually been the number one, just inching out uh, Kansas City Southern. But from this time date, uh, the 31st of June 1981 to the 31st of June 19 uh, or 2021, you have Kansas City Southern returning the most value to shareholders. Just kind of remarkable there. Uh, you've got a rail, you've got a rail line there. I saw another one. This was back maybe the beginning of last year. It was comparing. Um, Stock performances over the past 15 years, and they were showing, you know, Netflix, Amazon, uh, Apple, all of all these incredible companies. And you know who was number one? Old Dominion. Whoever would have thought <laughs> we're going to talk a little bit about Old Dominion towards the back end of the show when we get into some of the transportation earnings, if we have time. Just the idea here is that if you have really well-run management in a. Uh, in an area of transportation with demonstrable pricing power over long periods of time and a focus on returning value to shareholders, you can earn a lot of money in transportation.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of set up right there. And then I think despite definitely looking at the rails, like you said, barriers to entry, um, you can't just pick up and put some tracks down and the OR for transportation is really just through the roof. So definitely nice seeing them there. Yeah. Unreal.
0: ODFL is now kind of almost running like a rail uh, in its LTL performance. So we'll get into that here in a moment. Let's go through our charts of the day. We've got two for you today. Uh, First one here is our weighted rejection index. I don't think I've brought this one to the great quarter family yet, but this is our, the outbound tender reject index, uh, also accounting for market share. So these dark red is markets that are loosening and the the uh, dark blue are markets that are tightening. And these are weighted based on how big the market is. So it is only really changes in big markets that are kind of shown up here. And the big point I wanted to bring to you guys today is that the southern region has been really tight, disproportionately tight for the last several months. It's been a difficult region to cover. We've heard it from transportation um, executives. We've heard it from retailers as well that this area has just been tight and difficult to to cover given the growth in Savannah, the growth in the Jacksonville port. Yada, yada. There are many things that point to this. I'm not going to call it a trend. We only have one week here, but we have major southern markets in Atlanta and Savannah that are loosening a little bit. This should be celebratory news for shippers in the region uh, and uh, and just something to note here.
1: Yeah, I mean, Atlanta is always on the list whenever you're looking at volume or the rate of growth, whether it's going up or down. It's just one of those markets, no matter what's going on with inbound or outbound, it's almost always. On some type of map. Whenever I'm chatting with Zach Strickland, looking at those charts on the freight was now carrier updates. Atlanta is, is is a mainstay essentially. Yes, no doubt a major uh, a major market for U.S. freight markets. So uh,
0: it could just be a little lapse here in between um, in between waves of imports. We know we've still got about 15 or 20 ships outside the Port of Savannah. Those are not going to slow down. Uh, we can talk about inventories. We can talk about consumer demand. There are many catalysts to keep uh, goods moving through the ports and eventually into Atlanta and throughout the rest of the country. All right. One more sonar chart for you today. This one is on our links of haul, different links of haul coming out of Ontario, California. So Zach wrote about this uh, in his chart of the week, and he kind of wrote about it as shorter hauls playing a bigger portion, playing a bigger part in carrier compliance and how basically the amount of loads coming out of major markets for long haul loads is, has declined and contracted a little bit. And short haul loads have risen a lot and carriers are more willing to take a short haul load. They can run that basically in one day. The short haul, lo- hold, uh, short haul load is less than 250 miles. Those can often be run in, in, there and back in one day. So short haul here, you're looking at year to date numbers up 57%. That's OTVI for short haul at 57%. Long haul is contracted 5% year to date. And Zach didn't get into reasoning of why this, why this could be, he kind of just discussed what it would do to carriers and I just wanted to kind of discuss what I thought, at least my kind of stipulation here on why this is happening. And what I see is retailers, manufacturers, companies that are bringing uh, imports into the West Coast looking for other options, looking for the East Coast, uh, looking either to Savannah up toward, towards the Northeast and Elizabeth, uh, New Jersey. And rather than having to truck that a longer distance, you have, them, you have more of the goods that are coming in through the West Coast ports feeding the West Coast consumption rather than moving out into the rest of the country. This is, we kind of saw uh, an analogous situation in Savannah a few weeks ago where we saw that the outbound tender reject index out of Savannah was at like 25%. But if you look at all of the major lanes that come out of Savannah, they were all at like 18%. And more or less what that was is there were so many new lanes being created out of Savannah because uh, you know retailers and importers were bringing freight into Savannah and having to create new places to take it out of there because it would have been coming from uh, L.A. or would have been coming from Dallas or other regions, but then coming from Savannah. So you're having it on both sides. You have new lanes being created out of markets because of uh, importers' decisions to change the way they're bringing in imports. And I just think it's a fascinating chart a 57% short haul year to date, while long haul down 5% out of one of the nation's biggest regions there in Ontario.
1: Yeah, I think one of the other big areas that Zach was kind of mentioning when I got a chance to catch up with him in person was talking about the driver situation. So a lot of times drivers would prefer to have some of these shorter destinations so they can get back at home um, later on that night and not be gone for days and days on end. And so that kind of led me into the other thinking or the thought process of the really the push forward for automated trucking and and the segment that it's really going to be, um, you know, targeting. And that's going to be those long haul routes where we're seeing trucks on the road for days on end and so really when you kind of have those conversations about you know um, the the technology taking over human jobs a lot of times it's going to be jobs that usually not a lot of people want but also jobs that are going to be open to innovation and and really help and and, uh, assist drivers uh, that are already involved with it so not to say that there's going to be driverless cabins full autonomy things like that but I think this kind of leads into why there's a need for autonomy there in the supply chain.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point. Every executive I've spoken to at Too Simple, at Plus, at uh, Locomation, they've all pointed to that, that this technology automation aids workers before it replaces yeah. them. And this is not an easy job. This is a very tough job. The average age of a, a driver is 46 years old and it gets older every, uh, every year, it seems, with, with uh, not really replacing them with younger drivers. I've read estimates from HRI that says we're going to need another 1.1 million drivers over the next decade to keep up with freight demand that's a lot of drivers uh, and Autonomous can help kind of fill that buffer a little bit. All right, Anthony, let's move on to buy or sell. We've got two today. Uh, The first one is on used car prices. So the average transaction price for a used car was just over $25,000 in the second quarter of 2021. That was up about 21% year over year, according to data from online automotive resource Edmunds. That figure marks the highest average price for a quarter in a used car that Edmunds has ever tracked. But- the scorching used car market is showing signs of slowing down, according to an executive at one of the top auto retailers in the U.S. Here's a quote. Um, here's a quote from John Dyke uh, right here. So he says right now we've got about an eight to nine day supply of new cars on the ground. If you take our BMW brand that we have 15 stores with, by the time we get to October and November, we'll have a 25 to 30 day supply. When And that is going to start generating pre-owned inventory for all dealers. And that'll help alleviate some of the pricing said anthony you buying or selling that we might be seeing a peak in this used car
1: price surge buying it um i think we're definitely going to start to see more and more of these used cars on the lots Um, i think this this is spot on that we've probably seen the spike already and that's going to start to be alleviated um of course it's all going to come down to inventory that's going to be the name of the game for any much pretty much everything whether it's housing cars uh commodities it's goods, finished goods, has always been inventory. And mm-hmm. so I think when we're looking at this for sure. I think we have seen that the peak is still going to, I think, kind of moderate, but come down slowly, slowly, but surely.
0: Yeah, I, I, I question, I don't know if I'm buying the, uh, the fact that he's expecting in just two or three months time to triple the inventory on hand. That seems like, I don't know, it just seems like a lot, given that they only have eight to nine days right now, he's expecting 25 to 30 days. And I also question like, I don't know, I was trying to think like think through this mentally that, you know, when they, once they get new cars on the lot, it is going to trigger. I do believe that then will trigger this, um, you know, influx of inventory of used cars because I think trade-ins are going to be hot. People are going to want to be uh, getting a new car and trading in their old one. But I just think, like, it's going to be so much dynamic happening with new supply coming on um, new, new supply coming on used how the dynamics are gonna play out there. I mean, it could just flood uh, used car inventory pretty quickly if everybody opts in for a new car. I don't know whether the demand will be there, but in, but inventory, I mean, uh, um, excuse me, interest rates are still very low. There's still high consumer demand, there's excess savings, there's all the things that are that are pushing big ticket items, they're still there. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know, it's gonna be fun to watch it play out.
1: Oh, definitely, definitely. I'm still hoping that, uh... I hope the used car prices crash so I can find me a nice Audi R eight <laughs> for us uh, still. But and I maybe mean, fingers crossed on that. But for sure, uh, it's going to be interesting to watch.
0: You're going to finally get a uh, Tennessee license plate on this new car. I would get an I will get a Tennessee
1: license plate <laughs> if I had an R eight for okay. sure. <laughs>
0: All right. Uh, okay, we got one more for you. This is in your neck of the woods, Anthony. This is on U S. hiring. Uh, I've got a report here from. Uh, UGK from a payroll firm, UGK, that says that uh, employment may have slowed in July amid a COVID surge. So some of the high frequency data is showing that U.S. hiring slowed in July and did not held steady as widely expected with particular softness. And this is the catch, a particular softness among states that ended federal unemployment benefits and areas where COVID-19 Delta variant is raging. That makes sense, right? Payroll firm UGK said that growth in employees across a wide set of industries grew 1.1 percent from mid-June to mid-July, And that is about half of the 2% growth rate seen between May and June, which was ahead of the blockbuster um, jobs report that we saw in June where 850,000 jobs were added. So This is the notable point here that UGK said. They said, uh, in their data spanning a period when 26 states began halting the federal unemployment benefits, we've known that many of the Southern states have uh, kind of stopped these unemployment benefits early to, to try to get people back to work. And UGK is saying that that actually didn't work uh, that the that the growth that they're seeing in those states where they did pull those pull those benefits back was about half of what it was for states that didn't pull it back so Anthony, um, I guess there's two parts there are you buying or selling that unemployment uh, slowed in July and then also I guess are you buying and selling the idea that this you know this this effort by uh, by southern states really didn't work to get people back to work
1: I think for sure when looking at this you have to look at the variables and piece them together so one of the big things that you have outlined here is this in the midst of this, Covid surge. And so I think that's going to be the big part to kind of really take a look at. And so even though we're seeing that um, more states pulled back these benefits, I think it's also in conjunction with the surge of Delta kind of going through these states as well. So we're also seeing vaccination rates much lower in these states compared to some of the other parts of the country. So I think that's also going to play a role, not necessarily um, these benefits being pulled back, but more so taking a course of COVID right now. Yeah, I think
0: that's a good point. It's kind of difficult things to um, to discern between the two. I'll say that the one thing that I read from this is that people are going to go back to work when they want to. Yeah. Like we have, like I, I think about this. Like there's nine point two million jobs open. Like these yeah. people know this. They know that they have options. They know that uh, that that the that the power and the ball is in their court right now. And they're gonna go back to work when they want to. Like, yep. I think they have these excess savings. They don't feel the need to immediately go back, um, and they're gonna wait for the right opportunity. That, that seems apparent, and it's gonna be a really bumpy ride back to pre COVID level uh, of unemployment, of, of, yeah, of employment and unemployment. Okay, so one quick top story that I wanted to note uh, it's just another blow to the shipping industry, another blow to everybody that moves goods uh, internationally. Another sh- another crisis strikes. So we've got some video here from the flooding in the Western Europe and China's Henan province. This is a, a very key uh, region for uh, for transportation and hub t- and home to several major businesses. And they're grappling with devastating floods. There's been several hundred people that have uh, that have perished in these floods. And the the big point for transportation here is I think I read that there's 11 different rail lines that have been cut off uh, or completely you know shuttered um, by these floods. There were major manufacturing hubs and industri- industrial plants in the Hanan region that are you know, basically still underwater. And several companies, including Germany's largest steel maker, Tyson Krop, has declared force majeure because of this. And you know, the big, the big news coming out of this region is that you're looking at raw materials for electronics, uh, notably, and raw materials for automotive. Again, another thing that can hurt these supply chains that are struggling right now. Uh, the floods will also disrupt the supply of copper. Again, this is a huge region for copper. Um, it's just another thing after another, right? We have container availability, we have a shortage of space on boats, and then we had Suez Canal, and then we've got, uh, you know, we've got flooding, and we've got COVID outbreaks. It's just one thing after another, and we just seemingly can't get to, you know, a point of uh, of normalcy.
1: That's right, and I think the other big thing is is that a lot of these, a lot of times, these type of events happen so often. But now, during you know, COVID is still kind of going on, pandemic season is still happening right now it's going to be kind of amplified. And right. so I think when we're looking at this, this kind of puts supply chain on um, this, this, it gets magnified. And so you see it, we see it all the time throughout our years of kind of analyzing the supply chain, but now it's almost amplified, like I said, throughout this, this pandemic, it's, it's just each additional thing that happens really amplifies it and really kind of makes it that much more impactful and devastating. But um, we see it all the time with you know different stories, different backups, but people always get their things. So it's never really making the news. It's never really making headlines. But now I think supply chain is on the forefront of a lot of people's minds just because now it's really impacting their everyday situation, whether it's delivery delays or price increases because there's a limited amount of goods or or commodities for the raw materials.
0: Yeah, I can't remember who I heard say this, but they said that, you know, basically the transportation, the international and global logistics market is walking a tightrope without the balance beam. And it just takes one little thing to sway us. And it takes, you know, disproportionately long to climb up on the tightrope right now. Okay, let's move on to you care or not. We've got a few quick ones here. Uh, The first one I saw, PepsiCo uh, has agreed to sell Tropicana, Naked, and some other North American juice brands. For about three point three billion dollars to a French private equity company, Anthony, you care about PepsiCo kind of dealing out these juice brands?
1: I do. So I, I not that I've had Pepsi itself in a while, but I think I, I love the brand. Um, I think they're awesome. But I'm surprised because, so Tropicana, I, I would see them being able to take this and of course uh, the Naked brand, and kind of position it as of course it's filled with sugar. I was shook when I found out. And I thought I was being healthy this entire yeah. time but kind of really rebrand it and remarket it in such a way where you know they would be able to maybe hit a new demographic or hit a new market or work on different types of partnerships you know maybe i don't know if crossfit would be one potentially or any kind of uh, sport outlets yeah. i know of course uh, they have sports drinks and things like that but i think there may have been some type of rebranding potential there but i mean i, I do like pepsico as a brand but i'm going to go with a nod on this one
0: yeah i uh I, I I don't know if I care so much about this one. I just find it super ironic for that exact reason. When they bought these like five six years ago, this was pitched as you know how PepsiCo can reimage itself as a as a good for you brand. How it's like we're going to get into you know these juices and these smoothies, and nobody seemed to look at the back of the back of the label where there's <laughs> yeah, like yeah. more sugar in this than in a Pepsi. So yeah, um, I think the role I'll say this. I think the role of juice in uh, and fruit juices in American lives is uncertain uh, moving forward. I yeah. think I think that it will. Um, I, you know, I've read people online, like old people talk, you know, older people, you know, talk about what are what are kids going to be saying when, when you're old? Uh, yes. What are they going to be saying about you? And they're going to say, you know, they're going to be honest for drinking Cokes and drinking Gatorades and and things of that nature. So uh, I think PepsiCo trying to get a little bit ahead of that with this one. Uh, OK, now let's skip the uh, Prologis one. I was going to mention that, you know, Prologis is reporting. That 30% of their new real estate lease signings in Q2 were from e-commerce companies. uh, And most of those were not Amazon. I just wanted to make a note that e-commerce is growing all over the place. Um, The LA vacancy rate is at 1.7%. The LA, Ontario region, that's about a third of the national average. The US vacancy rate is about 4.5%. So LA... And the New York region, New Jersey is about 1.8%. Those are the two tightest regions in the U.S.
1: Uh, for Prologis. Well, quick on this one. I, I know we're we're kind of we're going over this one, but I just want to put an, a nod on this one. Even though e-commerce is the future, and it's here to stay, whenever we see like a flood of new activity, not everyone's going to make it. And so I think, okay, so inventory levels are really tight here, but there's going to be a lot falling by the wayside just because it is so hot right now. It's going to be here for a while. So it's definitely a great trend to ride, but I think there's definitely going to be a lot falling by the wayside on this one.
0: Yeah, we'll see. I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot of warehouse space being, being built right now. I read 467 million square feet in Q2. That was up something like 27% year over year. I think it's a record, uh, record building, you know, who knows, maybe there could be this, this kind of overbuild uh, at some point where they actually build too much space. I don't, you know, I think we're years away from that, but if they continue at this pace, uh, we'll see. I think you know we're going to talk about Amazon here in a moment. How they are—they're—they they're, still believe they're kind of catch up to demand. I think they're going to catch up pretty soon, and they'll actually at that point be in an even better position to deliver one day and same day and as fast as we can possibly think to get it. Especially um, with the micro
1: fulfillment centers. Yeah,
0: most definitely. Perfect uh, segue. We're going to talk about GoPuff raising a boatload of money in a moment, but. Here's an interesting one. I just think it's, it's funny because it's all happening at once. There's this uh, barbecue IPO battle going on. So Traeger, this, uh, I don't know if anybody's, if you haven't heard of Traeger, they make very fancy, very expensive uh, grills that you can control with your phone and whatnot. Uh, they, as long as well as Weber and another company called BBQ Guys are all trying to battle it out on public markets and are both are all coming public uh, amid this outdoor and at-home spending boom. Uh, I want to say that Barbecue Guys, by the way, is backed by Elon, Elon uh, Peyton Manning and, and Eli Manning. <laughs> I don't know where I got Elon out of that. Uh, Peyton and Eli Manning, and they are pursuing a SPAC. Anthony, what do you make about all of these barbecue companies coming public?
1: So I get it because, like you said, there's this boom right now, especially in this market, and they're trying to strike while the grill is hot. There you go. I don't know it if it's going to be long lasting. And I think that's just like they're trying to sneak in while the trend is up and moving right now so i've heard great things about both of these brands i haven't checked in too much with bbq guys but it sounds like they're really trying to do as much brand awareness with peyton and eli manning here right. but i think i mean traeger and, and weber i mean heard great things but nah yeah I was i'm just thinking it's just trying to get in there while they can
0: yeah i'm with you on this one i don't care i wanted to just make one note that of this crazy stat i saw
1: uh, sales of grills and smoker
0: was up 81% in Q2 of this year over Q2 of 2019. It was only up yeah. 10% over Q2 of last year. That tells you the surge that we saw uh, last year when people were stuck at home wanting to grill. I'll, I'll say another thing. It's uh, got a phonetic ticker. It's going to be Cook, C-O-O-K. I love a phonetic cooker. That's Look good. to a bark Box with Bark. And, uh, and uh, there's another Chewy with Wolf. or no, not Chewy. There's another one with Wolf, W-O-O-F. Yeah. I love a phonetic ticker.
1: Well, the thing is here, uh, like you just mentioned, um, that exponential growth on a quarterly basis, um, compared to last year, a lot of times Wall Street they don't care about trends, and the moment you start to slow down what we've seen with Amazon, right. if you slow down just the slightest,
0: mm-hmm.
1: everyone's going to be jumping ship all of a sudden. Like this isn't the hot thing anymore. So I'm going to be inter- interested to see on how they kind of navigate those waters. Yeah,
0: certainly nearsighted Wall, St- Wall Street <laughs> is. Okay, you, you mentioned micro-fulfillment centers. There's one of the companies that is uh, just racing to build as many as they possibly can. That is GoPuff. I've spoken uh, about them a couple times here on the show and, and at Point of Sale. I wrote an article a few weeks ago about how the logistics industry needs to take notice of this little company. Well, this might just help do that. They've raised another billion dollars in new funding at a $15 billion valuation. This raise follows one just in March, where they raised $1.15 billion at a $9 billion valuation. So they've added $6 billion in valuation in five months. Uh, The funds they expect to continue to fuel GoPuff's rapid expansion across North America and Europe and will help attract new talent and build out its tech stack. Anthony, you care or not about GoPuff raising another
1: boatload of money? I care uh, because I, I think that delivery service, that instant, you know, I need this now help close can we get to the final consumer final user is going to be the future um, as i said a lot of these uh, people are entering the e-commerce space not everyone's going to make it but a lot are and the faster and the more efficient you can drive your services the better so yeah i think this is kind of a, a trend of times to come on what's going to be really important to a lot of these delivery services absolutely
0: i care about this one i love this company i I'm um, just fascinated with what they're doing. So this company, if you don't know anything about them, they operate their own micro-fulfillment centers. They have about 300 of them now. They're adding about 30 per month all over the country. And these are little dark stores set up for e-commerce fulfillment of about three to 5,000 SKUs delivered within 30 minutes at a really low rate. But they own the inventory. This is not like Instacart or like Uber Eats or any of those that just pair drivers with a store. They actually own this inventory. So they earn a markup, about a 30% margin on the stuff they sell, and they don't have to rely on earning margins on the delivery, so they can keep it really cheap and do it really fast. And they're profitable after 18 months in every single market that they've opened in. Uh, as I said, they're adding 30 uh, micro-fulfillment centers a month. They recently made an acquisition of Fancy. They acquired another delivery tech firm. They launched fresh meals in their home market in Pittsburgh. They bought this uh, They bought this huge... Um, Liquor store brand on the West Coast with like two hundred and fifty stores called Bevmo. They bought another liquor store chain. and they're bringing on huge talent. They just brought on Tim Collins, who used to be the the VP of Global Logistics at Amazon. So, you know, wherever the amazon uh, alums, the they end up in the diaspora, uh, they are typically very successful. So I, I, GoPuff is seriously a company to watch. If it launches in your region, try it out because it's actually an awesome service. I'm waiting for them to launch in Chattanooga. I'm hoping maybe this money uh, can help them open up their own micro fulfillment center here in town. All right. Let's uh, let's let's take a few moments here. We've only got about three minutes here. Let's just briefly go over Amazon's uh, quarter because that was what we we're going to talk about here. The The title of the episode is Amazon's antitrust defense system is being fortified. And what I mean by that is Amazon's a service company now, yeah. as much as it is anything else. 49% of their revenue in Q2 came from services, $55 billion out of $113 billion. But the point that I want to make about their antitrust defense system is most of that growth is coming from really parts of the business that are part of the core e-commerce flywheel. That is advertising, that is third-party fulfillment services, and that's prime subscription revenue. AWS still growing really fast, about 40%. Uh, growth year over year. That is its own standalone business. And if for some reason regulators were to require them to spin off and to kind of uh, put that as a separate business unit, it certainly would be a loss of a major profit center for Amazon. But the fastest growing segments in the entire business are within its e-commerce core flywheel, which I just can't imagine regulators asking them to spin off any part of uh, from its core business. So it's got profit centers to continue fueling this unreal logistics capex 20 billion dollars a year into the foreseeable future
1: yeah and i think amazon definitely kind of built the handbook in a sense on really owning each step in each process and i think that's one of the things that was really making them so impactful and really being able to be so profitable here is making sure that they can really own each step in each process and oh is there another step involved with this well, let's get our own thing going in-house and make sure that we can innovate it and and really kind of streamline it all together
0: yeah, exactly. And they, you know, people the Wall Street and analysts are harping that they're not growing as fast as they were last year. Well, you know, last year was the middle of the pandemic where they were locked inside. They grew revenues uh, about 27% year over year. The the e-commerce uh, online business was up 16% year over year. And that is comping against a quarter in which they grew 48% in Q2 of last year. So again, uh, continuing to add on the top line. And it's growing as fast on a two-year stack as it was prior to COVID. It's going between 25 to 30% on a two-year stack. That's its product business. So while it is now a service company, and I've, I've seen some analysts say that they believe that service revenue will actually overtake product revenue in Q3 of this year, its product is still growing really fast, and all the most important parts are growing real fast, like the th- like the uh, the third-party services and uh, and and you know fulfillment fulfillment by Amazon and the, the third-party sellers. That's that's growing faster than its own core online sales, which means that third-party sales are making up a bigger portion of its overall sales. That is a good thing for the company because it knows marketplace is the future. All right. Uh, and also, last thing, the pipes are being laid for one-day delivery. They've said that they're, they're still not catching, they're still not caught up to their percentage of one-day deliveries that they were pre-COVID, but they just continue and continue to build FCs, build DCs, uh, add to their delivery arm, add um, planes to their fleet, add uh, trucks to their uh, um, Amazon Freight Partner service. Um, as I said, they believe they're still catching up to demand pull forward over the last 18 months. I think they're going to catch up pretty quick and at that point they're going to be in a really strong position an even stronger position than they were pre-covid to deliver one day same day next hour whatever they really choose yeah i agree all right everyone that has been it for episode 80 of great quarter guys the show where the lines between freight and finance are none we really appreciate you if you turned in live if you are not turning in live. You're listening to us uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to subscribe. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Great Quarter Guys on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Also subscribe to Freightcast to get everything Freightwaves does in one tight audio feed. We'll see you guys again next week, same time, uh, 3 o'clock Eastern Tuesday. We'll see you then.